You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a life-saving golden rescue, how contributing to an RRSP might reduce your taxes, and pharmacies prepare to help with the vaccine rollout. But first... As much of the province transitions out of lockdown, the Ontario Medical Association is calling on the government to adjust the color-coded framework to help curb the spread of COVID-19, the variants, and potentially avoid a third wave. Dr. Samantha Hill is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. She joins us now on the feed. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. So what is the potential of a third wave right now? The potential of the third wave, unfortunately, is very high. Doctors remain concerned about the potential dangers brought on by this newer, more contagious variant and all of the variants of concern of this new virus. We think that the new variants are going to be dominant by mid-March, and we know that variants like this were responsible for the third wave in the UK, which was a much bigger wave than either the first or second had been. So we're seeing, though, that the case numbers are down, uh, and that gives people some hope, some reassurance that maybe the worst is almost over, but there is the unknown that you know about, that we don't, that we need to hear about. Absolutely. So people are weary, and we are all delighted to see the case numbers come down. At one point, we were predicting 40,000 new cases a day as a potential for this period of time, and it is a wonderful thing that we are not living that. But daily case numbers don't tell the whole story. It takes a while for infected people to show symptoms, and the numbers that we're seeing and the decisions that are being made are being done on numbers that are several weeks old. That's even more true when it comes to the variants and the results that are reported, as that gap is even longer. Dr. Hill, when the government made the decision to allow certain parts of Ontario to move into the red zone, did they consult you? Did you reach out to them? What was that like, that dance, if you will? And this took place, you know, last week. Absolutely. So that dance, as you say, has been ongoing since the very beginning of the pandemic. Ontario's doctors are here to help Ontarians get through this pandemic. And part of that involves doing our best to provide the best evidence and the best support that we can for government in a nearly impossible position. We appeal to the government to continue pandemic restrictions for a while longer. We've just reopened schools across the province, and these new variants pose an unknown. And as we look forward to the future, we want to see what each of these has an effect before we compound them by adding to it. So have some of your recommendations been implemented? Uh, We see that there is a kind of a different color-coded framework, including the red zone, which is now what York Region sits in, which is what we are broadcasting from. Have you seen adjustments made? Would you like to see further adjustments made? Absolutely. So the first thing is that I need to give the government credit. When the framework first rolled out, we spoke out against the numbers that had people transitioning from one zone to the next or from one color to the next. And the government made those changes within 24 to 48 hours. And I give them credit for that because that must have been very hard to do. That being said, 
the framework that we're currently working with is based on the old variant of the virus, and we do think there are changes that need to be made moving forward. Let's talk about those recommendations. First, banning indoor dining in regions in the red zone. Can you elaborate? Absolutely. So I encourage everyone to take off their mask and eat a couple of times a day. But the idea of doing that indoors with non-household members is really concerning in the midst of a pandemic where we have a virus that is even more contagious than it used to be. This just boils down to the same common sense and public health guidelines that we've seen from the beginning, which is about mitigating spread between people by mitigating prolonged contact indoors without a mask. So does that mean that in areas where indoor dining is permitted, you would prefer that only household members be allowed to sit together at dining tables? Absolutely. That's exactly what we would say. At this point in this crisis, we need to restrict people to their household groups. We need to encourage retailers to offer curbside pickup rather than in-store shopping. And we need to really ban all of those indoor activities that require going without a mask in anything that's in a red zone. How about socializing outdoors? What would you like to see in terms of length of time without a mask outside? It's such a good question, especially as we come into spring, and maybe I'm jumping the key there, but I'm looking forward to spring. We currently talked about being able to socialize outdoor without masks to about 15 minutes, but that's based on the old variant. And we really need to keep a very close eye on the spread because that number might need to shorten. That number may no longer be as safe as it was a year ago. Can we talk about rapid testing arrangements? What do you say and what do you recommend? What does the OMA recommend on that front? Absolutely. So rapid Testing is an incredible opportunity to screen people who are at high risk of spreading it to another. And we need to watch whether the spread of variants overwhelms the current capacity for rapid testing. We also need to really work hard to expand rapid testing to all places where people are at risk. And that would include things like schools and essential workplaces, really anywhere where we think there might be the source of the next big spreading event. You also believe that ensuring there are plans in place uh, when it comes to administering vaccines, they should be coming soon. Why is that important, that there are plans in place to expeditiously administer the vaccines? Such a great question. So we've seen the vaccine rollout struggle a little bit since its um, inception. And part of that is beyond anyone's control, right? If the supply doesn't come in, if there's no vaccine, you can't possibly get it into a person's arm. But part of it is about the plans being more um, global, more high-arching, and less detailed to individual sites and individual locations. And the reason why that's important is because it's the practical details that will make any plan fail or succeed. So making sure that we have plans in place to really expedite administering the vaccines that we think are going to arrive in the next week or so, hundreds of thousands of them, if we're going to be honest, it's the possibility of protecting hundreds of thousands of our population, but only if we can get those vaccines from fridges into arms, and most importantly, the right arms. Dr. Hill, this is a medical question rather than a political question. Do you think that in, in light of the variants and, and, and how easily they are moving through communities, they are spreading, was it too soon, do you think, to move part of Ontario into a color-coded framework, out of lockdown, out of stay-at-home orders? So history will tell us if it was too soon or not. 
I know that we at the OMA recommended holding on to the restrictions for a little bit longer. We wanted to see the results of sending people back to school. We wanted to see the results of the new variants prior to opening up. When you compound all of these possibilities to spread, you compound the probability of spread. And what that means is increasing that risk of a third wave and increasing the severity of a third wave. We are being listened to by many people, including the amazing citizens who call York Region home. What does the Ontario Medical Association say to us, say to them? First and foremost, let me say to you, thank you. It is the act of each individual person, whether it's in York or other regions, that have mitigated all of the potential disasters up until now. When you were asked to stay home, you did. When you were asked to put on a mask, you did. When you were asked to wash your hands, you did. And all of that came with a cost, personal, financial, mental well-being. We understand that. So thank you for everything that you've done to keep your neighbors safe, to keep your family safe, and to keep the health system up and running. Because had we seen those 40,000 cases a day, we would certainly have been in a situation where we couldn't even do the basics. That being said, I know we're all weary. I know we all want to get back to something that looks like normal. I want to tell you that that light at the end of the tunnel, it's close. Spring is a few weeks away, and with that comes a lower virus transmission. Those vaccines are coming, and with them come more protection. Buckle down for one last effort. Do what you need to do. Wear your mask. Stay away from people. Don't eat indoors with people who aren't part of your household, etc. And get us to spring. With spring comes open doors, open windows, eating outside on patios, With the vaccines comes protection of our most vulnerable and then hopefully everyone else as well. You can do this. You've done the hardest part already. And yet we have permission now to visit stores. I mean, limited capacity. But if you drive by any mall, any big shopping area here in York Region, you see tons of cars. You see tons of people lined up. It almost seems as if with this freedom comes greater risk. Well, the freedom always comes greater risk, but what I'll say is simply this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Calling on people to make the right decisions for themselves and calling on people to be aware that every action carries a risk, and that isn't to scare you. You need to go out and get your groceries. I understand that. You need to go out and do your things. I, need to, I understand that. But do them as safely as possible. Do them as infrequently as possible. Keep yourself as isolated as you can for the next little while because as we move forward and as we reopen and as we reintegrate, every contact you have with another person until you are vaccinated, until they are vaccinated, is a risk. Dr. Samantha Hill, President of the Ontario Medical Association, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. Uh, Stay safe and stay healthy. And you as well. Thank you. So what role will pharmacies play in the administering of vaccines to Ontarians? Tina Cortez now with that story. Earlier this week, the Ontario government announced that an online tool and call centre for booking appointments for the COVID-19 vaccine will open on March 15th. Ontarians 80 and over are next to receive a shot. 
To discuss the role that our pharmacies will play in the administering of the vaccine, we're joined by Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thank you for your time, Justin. Great to be on the program. So what can you tell us about the pharmacy's role in giving Ontarians the vaccine for COVID-19? I think we're going to play an important role to ensure that there is high accessibility and convenience for Ontarians to get the vaccine, both from the convenience of going into a pharmacy, and we have 4,600 of them, which gives us a large footprint uh, in every community across the province. In fact, within uh, all Ontarians are within three kilometres of the pharmacy. and We are building on the success of our flu program, which this year we administered close to 2 million uh, flu vaccinations. So this is something that we do, and we do quite well. Uh, we have been able to mobilize around large-scale efforts to vaccinate the population, and we have the infrastructure, technology, and resources to do it. The other part that's going to be so critical is the education consistent across the healthcare system so that primary care physicians, public health units that are running the mass immunization clinics and pharmacies have the same set of uh, information to educate the public on how mRNA vaccines work and to address vaccine hesitancy. So we're certainly ready. Uh, We've been in um, dialogue with the Ministry of Health, uh, collaborating around the role of pharmacy, timing, as well as um, exactly how it will be implemented in terms of a dry run exercise and tabletop planning. So we think uh, hopefully as phase two starts to transition in March, uh, there'll be a role for um, pharmacists uh, starting in in March and April timeframe. So let me pick up on a couple of things you said there. First of all, you said that 2 million flu vaccines were administered this year. How does that compare to previous years? Yeah, it's been rising every year. And this year we saw unprecedented uh, demand uh, starting in October. I think the the awareness of the importance and value of getting a, a flu vaccine drove some of that early demand. Um, and we saw a 500% increase in demand when compared to the same time last year. So the previous year we did uh, 1.4 million vaccinations uh, for the flu. This year, uh, as I said, we're just, just under 2 million and it's still still going until, uh, you know, in mid-March. So it'll be, we'll be very close to that 2 million uh, mark. And uh, it's just, a, I think, again, it's, it's about um, looking at um, where people want to go to get their vaccinations, the on-demand feature of pharmacy. You can walk in at any time and uh, get your, your vaccine was certainly one of the advantages. And now we're implementing more of an appointment-based model to manage that demand, knowing it's going to be a significant undertaking, even more demand for the COVID vaccine. I think managing that through technology and um, making sure that we uh, don't have chaos and uh, you know ensue when uh, community rollout happens. A significant undertaking, indeed. How will the practice or dry runs work? Yeah, so we're working through those details. I think first and foremost, we we need to develop a playbook and look at all the various scenarios and how the patient would book an appointment, how we would uh, manage the distribution. Um, you know, there's a lot of considerations in the complexity of the of the vaccine. Moderna, as one example, once you puncture the vial, it's only good for six hours. Otherwise, it will spoil, and, and each vial is good for 10 doses. So you need to manage your appointments in your inventory accordingly. Um, and, of course, all of the screening and assessment of the patient um, is going to be important. We talk about uh, priority populations and the ethical framework that the province has developed we know that that's going to be a critical component to qualify eligible people at different times. So community is likely going to 
um, look at the categories around uh, age. Uh, we know that 80 plus is the first category. And then it will, on a frequency, I think it's every couple of weeks, they'll be expanding it by five-year intervals and uh, and eventually to the general population in August. So we also want to make sure that, um, you know, when there is more than one vaccine available, and, and we're hopeful that that will be soon with the AstraZeneca vaccine awaiting Health Canada approval, and then soon will be a J&J option as well. You want to look at the different vaccines, the data and science behind them, and make sure that it's the right vaccine for the right person. People who have comorbidities or health complications may react differently to different vaccines. So that's why you want a healthcare professional um, who has oversight and, and certainly expertise on the clinical side to make the, the most informed decisions. Absolutely. So how will pharmacists then play a role, especially with those who might be hesitant or reluctant to take the COVID-19 vaccine? Education is a big component of that, um, assessing the patient, um, talking to them about the science and data behind the uh, safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. I think health, all healthcare professionals have a leadership role in demonstrating um, the value of, of getting the vaccine. And we want to make sure we're protecting public health, keeping the economy open. And we can only do that if we can get herd immunity. And that's through getting at least 60 to 70% of the population vaccinated. So the accessibility of pharmacies at that 4,600 uh, points of care across the province in rural, remote, urban, and suburban is, is one of the um, advantages the pharmacy has. The trust between a uh, healthcare provider like a pharmacist uh, and the patient uh, is something to leverage. And, and we do this already. So there's a uh, certainly a, a learned behavior going into a pharmacy and getting a vaccination. We do travel vaccines, the flu, uh, as well as looking at expanding into other vaccinations down the road. So um, all of those things will lead to, I think, an uptick in people uh, coming to the pharmacy. And if, if, if we've you know learned anything from the flu season, we know that the demand is going to be uh, quite uh, significant. And uh, if we're targeting um, you know, the majority of the population, we're going to need all healthcare providers that being through primary care as well as public health units to be complementary and ensure that uh, we're working together and coordinating our efforts to both educate the pub, uh, public and uh, make sure the vaccine is available. So to be clear, should our listeners expect that pharmacies will be involved in the vaccine rollout at every stage? So 80 plus and then 75 and beyond, 65 and beyond. Should we expect that we could go to our local pharmacy and receive the COVID-19 shot when our time comes? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, the 80 plus uh, is still uh, working through the details uh, based on the supply availability. And a lot of this is dependent on when uh, supply will be available. And we do expect to get dumps of supply shortly. And uh, our expectation in our conversations is that pharmacy will be involved um, and will probably be on a limited basis initially and then roll out um, when supply becomes more available. So uh, I expect the same for primary care physicians and public health units running those mass immunization clinics. So it'll be uh, a timed and, and, and coordinated effort um, as we work through ensuring that uh, we have the supply. We're ready to do it. We can turn the key on, uh, the switch on in, in you know, less than 72 hours and be ready to start vaccinating. One of the advantages as well is that um, through the enabling regulations, the government has uh, permitted both pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to be administering vaccines. So many technicians are getting certified, going through the training, 
and that will add capacity uh, and resources to our effort. And we have um, done a survey of our members and um, our estimation of the throughput capacity of pharmacy is to do approximately 46 vaccinations per store per day. Wow. If you look at a rolling seven-day period, we can do over a million um, adding to the overall immunization uh, rates. Those are great numbers. Sounds great. Um, I want to ask you, earlier in the show, we had the Ontario Medical Association as part of our discussion, and they are often providing guidance to the Ontario government. Is your association doing the same from your perspective? Absolutely. It's a collaborative effort. Uh, we have regular meetings in our course of business with the the ministry as it relates to many of our medication management services and through with public health uh, on the vaccination efforts. So this is no different. We've been engaged with the ministry to uh, set a fair and reasonable reimbursement rate for the immunizations that will be provided for the COVID vaccine, as well as all of the logistics distribution um, and workflow considerations. So it's going to continue to be a collaborative process with the Ministry of Health and other key stakeholders, uh, such as the provincial uh, task force that General Hillier uh, um, is chairing and, uh, and all of our key stakeholders in the community. So what is your association's message then to your members, to the Ontario government, and to your patrons, to our listeners? Well, I think our message is that we're ready, um, that we're going to be a significant part of the overall effort to ensure that Ontarians get the vaccination, and indeed across the country, um, as we look at uh, over 11,000 pharmacies uh, from coast to coast to coast. And, and I think that most importantly, we have the training and expertise, uh, systems and infrastructure to be able to operationalize this quickly um, and do it both safely and effectively so that um, you know, Ontarians can feel uh, confident in, in the system and the plans that are, are currently underway. Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thank you for the information and thank you for joining us on the feed. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. York Region Chair and CEO Wayne Emerson joins us next on the feed. Thank you for being here, Wayne. Thank you, Tina, for inviting me. It's uh, great to be able to come on 105. I've always enjoyed uh, the conversations with, with everyone down there. Well, that's terrific. So let's start with how goes this first week in the red zone for York Region? Wow. Um, we're hoping that uh, our businesses and, uh, and, and our residents uh, will abide by the restrictions that we have given, we are putting out uh, through the red zone from the province. Uh, um, like we're really hoping that... Uh, some of the businesses will be able to see a little glimpse of hope going forward, uh, but it does key a lot regarding our residents, York Region residents, to maintain uh, mask, putting their mask on, and social distancing, and uh, maintaining all the restrictions that we have put in place for the businesses. How concerned are you about region hopping? Well, I'm not really too big concerned of it, uh, Tina, because we have. Um, Business. We have uh, businesses in the York region that have employees from the city of Toronto, the region of Durham, and Mississauga and Brampton. So they come every day or pretty well five days a week. So they're here now. We have also people living in the York region that go to the city of Toronto, to Durham, to Peel, to actually um, work there also. So we're not. I'm not really concerned about the um, region hopping. I think that uh, we have put enough uh, restrictions in place. Uh, for everyone, and that's if you come from uh, from another area, 
um, fine, you have to abide by our restrictions. So uh, I'm hoping that we don't get a lot, but if they do come, um, they will hopefully, hopefully they'll abide by our, our restrictions. What can you tell us about the plans to vaccinate right here in York Region? We've had um, great um, staff uh, working on this now for many, many months, understanding how we're going to roll this out. We've had great cooperation from the uh, local municipalities to provide us facilities. We're ready. Uh, We were told by the general and by the premier, if we were to give you 50,000 doses, how soon can you get it out? We can get it out within three days. We know we've got places ready to go, right, as if tomorrow if it came about. So we're we're happy with our plan. I, I commend our staff for doing an excellent job, but also commend the local municipalities uh, coming forward to help us get this um, put this plan in place. How often do you speak or meet with the mayors across York Region and York Region Public Health? How often does that group connect on this issue? We... Um, we work it through the CAO. Uh, Bruce McGregor, the CAO of the region of York, meets with the CAOs of the local municipalities. We um, we meet pretty well, I think, since way back before Christmas. Um, we've been meeting every week other than the two weeks at Christmas time. And uh, we've been meeting every week and going over with, with Dr. Kirchie, all, all members of council, Gwen. I did have a couple meetings before, um, just in the new year, just to roll out a couple issues regarding just the mayors. But I got a little pushback from some members of council saying, like, we're part of this whole picture and they want to be included. So I brought them all in. So I'm bringing them in every month, every week, I mean, to understand where we're at. We give them updates every day on what's happening in York Region. Well, York Region Chair and CEO Wayne Emerson, thank you for this update for our listeners. Well, thank you, Tina. And everyone, please be safe out there. And uh, hopefully um, we'll get through this sooner or later. And the vaccines are on their way. Um, be patient and uh, please abide by all the restrictions. Thanks, Dina. Coming up, giving and receiving your RRSP contribution. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. It has been a very tough year for many of us financially. Jim Lang now with what to do if you dipped into your savings or RRSPs to stay afloat. Now, it's hard to believe, but March 1st is the deadline for your RRSP contributions. For a lot of people stuck in the stay-at-home order in the pandemic, it's sort of like, whoa, 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 what, what, RRSPs? We need to get more information about it. Thrilled to be joined by Josie Cabral, tax expert at H&R Block uh, on the feed right now. Josie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I, I, I'm getting this sense, like myself, a lot of people are like, oh, oh, RRSPs, I almost forgot about that. That seems to be a prevailing sentiment in Canada right now. Yes, definitely. And what pe- a lot of people are not aware of the fact that you actually have the first two months of every year to contribute to your RRSP. So this year, the, ta- uh, the deadline to contribute is March 1st. And it's a good way. What you need to do is, my recommendation to people is come see us in office now so that we can do a simulation of your taxes and help you lower your income tax to pay. 
Now, for a lot of people, of course, this has been a very difficult calendar year uh, with the, the work reductions, uh, pay reductions. Maybe they were furloughed for a while. Uh, it's really topsy-turvy. Uh, is this going to be a down year for the amount of contributions to RSPs in Canada, or how do you, uh, H&R Block, expecting it? Well, we're not too sure what to expect, but we are, you know, as always, recommending to people that, you know, they do try to continue to contribute to their RSP. You have to remember that you're investing in your future, and the advantage of it is that you're actually getting a tax break on it. So that's always a good thing. No, very good thing. And I have to say, I got good advice from people like you and your staff of getting an RESP when our kids were young. We have one daughter in university now, and putting that money away in their RESP, it's paying off big time by helping us pay for her bills at school. Yeah, definitely, because if you if you fit it into your budget and you're, you know, every month, every year you're contributing to it, then in the long run, the money's available to you. And, you know, like you said, for your daughter, university is expensive, so at least it helps you out, you know, and it's the same thing for RSPs. Um, you start contributing young to your RSPs, and when you purchase your first home, you take that money out to contribute to your down payment. Now, here's a question I hear often. Okay, I say I'm 18, 19 and making some money. If I just put, say, a few hundred dollars a year into my RSP at start uh, until I get more money, is that a good thing? Definitely. Any contribution to an RSP is great. What I don't recommend to people is actually taking the money out of their RSP. The only valid reason for me to take out money from your RSP is for the purchase of your first home. Either than that, leave the money in your RSPs. If you want to use your, your, that savings to play around, buy stocks, do things like that, the things that are becoming more and more popular right now, then what you should be doing is getting a tax-free saving account. Although you won't be getting a tax credit for the tax-free savings account, you are capable of taking out money and playing around with it with that account. Now, help me out here, because I know there's been some changes. What is the contribution max limit on RSPs and TFSAs now in Canada? Um, for your tax-free saving account, the contribution is six thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and for RSPs, I believe it's twenty-three thousand. Oh, oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, okay. but but also you have to keep in mind that everybody has a, a maximum. You have to look into that. You can uh, you can see that on your previous year notice of assessment. Or you can look on uh, your My Account directly on the CRA website. And on there, you'll be able to see how much you personally are allowed to buy. Speaking with Josie Cabral, a tax expert at H&R Block in the feed and getting ready for the RSP contribution deadline and starting to think ahead to tax season as well with the CERB, with stay-at-home orders. Uh, orders. I know a lot of people basically have worked at home exclusively since the lockdown. That's that's going to be make for a different tax contribution and tax season for H&R Block. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing that's great is that the government announced that people that were working at from home for... Um, they get the deduction for a work from home, and basically there's two different ways to calculate it. There's the $2 a day for up to 200 days for, the cred- for a deduction of $400. Please take note that it is a deduction, not a credit, so it helps you lower your income tax to pay. And then the other um, method that's available is the detailed version. On this one, you're capable of claiming a portion of your rent, a portion of your cell phone, uh, your high, uh, your electricity bill, your internet bill, and also any kind of supplies. 
What's very important is that you have to have work from home more than 50% of the time for four consecutive weeks, and also your employer cannot have reimbursed you for those expenses. Ah, of course, that makes total sense, of course, because you'd be double-dipping, right? Exactly, and in that case, then your employer, if you're taking the detailed version, it's very important that your employer... Uh, fill out the form for you, and he gives you the form for you to complete it on your income tax. The name of the form is the T2200S. The moral of the story, when in doubt, go to your local H&R Block tax expert. They'll answer your questions. They'll make sure you get your RSP contributions done properly before the deadline, and it'll solve a lot of your financial problems and answer your questions. And that's the great thing about you and your staff to H&R Block. A lot of people have questions. Well, just contact you and your staff. They'll have the answers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we have hours and hours of training every year, and the point of coming to see us is that we want to put money back in your or clients' pockets, and we want to help you out to have the maximum refund possible. So definitely get organized in advance and come see us in office. March 1st is the deadline. Make your contribution, reduce your tax level, save money for the future. Jose, thank you so much for helping us and giving us some, some information that we really need right now this time of year. It's greatly appreciated. The pleasure is all mine. Have yourself a very good day. Karen Johnson next with how one local business managed to stay alive and even grow in this pandemic. When the pandemic hit and retail outlets were forced to close their doors temporarily last March, it forced one owner to think outside the box and turn her brick-and-mortar store into a virtual store. Lori Thompson, owner of Lulu Boutique in Markham, shares her story of retail survival with us. Welcome to the feed, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about your store and how you started? Yeah, so my mother and I, we started our business in 1990. Uh, I was living in Ireland and she wanted me to come home. I went through fashion merchandising and design. We came home to open up this business. And then, unfortunately, my mother got sick and she passed away from cancer two years in. And I've basically been carrying it on as a legacy to my mom and just putting my heart and soul into it. Have you been at the same retail store in Markham since the beginning? No, we have changed. Um, I've had, this is my third location. We started in Unionville, and then we moved to the Unionville Main Street mm-hmm. uh, eight years ago. And then we just reopened uh, in Markham Main Street. Our business grew so much during the first lockdown that we just felt like we needed to grow a little bit more. So we tripled our store size, and now we have fabulous new brands and just catering to a whole different wider audience. Retail can be challenging at the best of times. What prompted you during the lockdown to pivot your approach? Because you never had a retail website online. People were finding you through other means, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, So when we first started, of course, I honestly was devastated and thought, how am I going to do this? Um, And then I just kind of started thinking outside the box and I thought, we got an, an audience on Instagram. We didn't have a lot of followers, but um, I started, you know, posting things daily and just trying to, trying to get women to shop. Um, then we started ramping it up, and my son started doing free local delivery in the area, and then it went all across Ontario. He delivered close to 14,000 kilometers in his truck and would just be the Lulu's delivery boy, and women were just so <laughs> thrilled to see him, and 
Just bringing a little sunshine to people's day. Well, you seem to be bringing a lot of sunshine, and you've had a lot of success with the way you've pivoted things using social media. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses. You had a little bit of backlash from maybe some of your uh, neighbors in the retail. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't know if it was really, um, like, it wasn't definitely wasn't store owners, but mm-hmm. it definitely was re- um, neighbors. Uh, we had a lot of people constantly, you know, checking our door to see that it's locked. We had the bylaw officers over constantly. We had the police show up at our door just, you know, following up on a complaint. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were just trying as a small business, and we were following the guidelines. And I, I don't know why, you know, small businesses were targeted. You know, we weren't really doing anything wrong. We were following all of the guidelines. But it just became a little dis- disappointing. Mm-hmm. Naturally, of course. But, you know, you've been so successful the way you've pivoted too. But not only are you embracing your success, you're paying it forward as well. And you're helping other vendors in the community. What exactly are you doing to help them? I totally believe that the phenomenon of Shop Local took off. And I totally believe that a main street has to have a lot of thriving businesses. So I had a lot of my competitors come to my door saying, you know, how did you do it? And, you know, I helped and we shared posts and we said, hey, if you're looking for this for anybody or, you know, this is a great store on Market Main Street, this is our neighbor. I mean, it's all about, you know, coming together as a community and having a lot of stores. You don't ever want to see anybody close their doors. No, that's true. You know, it's numbers. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. But what do you base your success during the pandemic? What do you base it on? I totally believe it was growing our Instagram followers. I mean, we started out with, you know, not that many, and now we're up to close to 4,000. And we just have had so many women coming out saying, wow, you know, we love your story. We love how hard you work. Like, I post pictures, you know, all day long. People just want to see. We get in new arrivals every day. I mean, it's just women, it's a little piece of happiness for them, you know. Oh, they you got that right. <laughs> yeah, they weren't spending their money on travel per se anymore, so they right. felt like, let me just feel good. Let me. So we just started offering tons of new brands, just really being aggressive with it. Really, and I you really know, loved and your in- doing live events. I loved your Instagram shows as well. You know, after seven o'clock, you know, you grab out your your favorite beverage and you just sit wa- sit back and and basically shop as you show the newest arrivals. Yeah, that for us too. I mean, that was, we were very nervous doing our first one, but you know, it's going outside the box, but we just had so much fun and the response was so incredible. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think going forward, we're still going to keep doing it when we're open once a month. Like women just want to relax in their home. I mean, shopping online is, is, you know, for us probably, I'd say 60% of our business now. It used to be 10%. So it's really been a change. What's your advice to others struggling and looking to pivot in their retail business right now, especially, you know, amongst the pandemic that's happening out there? I would honestly say that you've got to go online. I mean, as hard as you think it is, it, it, it really isn't. And, you know, the more that you post, the more you're going to sell. If you just sit back and wait for people to come to you, you can't. Like, you have to get out there. Mm-hmm. You know, hashtags are so important, you know. Get your social media page out there. Listen, now that uh, York Region is in the red zone, um, what do you guys plan to do? Are you going to pivot from what you've been doing during lockdown, or are you going to have both services available in-store and curbside? Yeah, we're still going to. There are a lot of people who don't want to come in stores, which, you know, is totally acceptable. So we still are doing our curbside. We are going to open. It's going to take us a couple of days because we have been running as kind of like a warehouse. 
um, for the last two months. So we're going to re-merchandise and get ready for opening on Wednesday. We're still going to offer curbside pickup starting Tuesday, but you've got to accommodate everybody. No, absolutely. So we're just going to keep it going. Great. Well, continue spreading the sunshine that you do over there in Markham. And thank you for sharing yeah. your story on the feed. We truly appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. After the break, a golden rescue. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. 36 beautiful but broken dogs, most of them golden retrievers, were rescued from the streets of Cairo where they had endured great hardships. Things like neglect, abandonment, hunger, thirst, isolation, and in some cases, torture. Golden Rescue stepped up, stepped in, and stopped the unimaginable abuse these courageous canines were enduring. A mercy flight from Egypt to Canada last week saw the three dozen dogs land safely at Pearson and into the arms of their new forever families. One of Golden Rescue's animal angels joins us now with more on their incredible journey. Viva Tam, thank you for being with us on the feed. Thank you very much for inviting us. So how did this all begin? How did you know that there were problems being faced by so many dogs on the streets of Cairo? Well, it really all started with um, Istanbul. We started rescuing uh, Goldens from Istanbul, and, uh, um, and rescue around the world uh, started to notice. And um, about five or six shelters from Egypt and Cairo specifically called us to ask if we might be able to help their Goldens also. So many Golden Retrievers in these foreign places, and, and in particular what we're talking about right now in Cairo, that's, that's quite a number. It's almost limitless. Uh, what happened is that the Golden is actually fairly newly introduced to Egypt as more of a status symbol, but of course when their you know, economics crashed, uh, the first thing that uh, people do is abandon their pets. So they do have a culture of street dogs, but as you can imagine, Goldens, that gentle-natured Golden, does not do well as a street dog. You sent me some information as we were preparing for this interview, and with that information came some photographs, and they were shocking and disturbing. Some of those dogs were tortured. No question about it. Poor Elsa had a chain tied around her neck as a puppy very, very tightly, and it grew right into her neck. So it really had to be extracted. It was horrible to look at. And, uh, and poor Elsa was chained to a wall and deliberately set on fire. These are just terrible things to hear, but let's now move to how you were able to get the dogs, retrieve the retrievers, if you will, and, and where did they go before their mercy flight, their freedom flight? Well, you know, Anne, uh, as much as I know that our, our adopters and our volunteers here are angels, and there's no question about it, the real angels are the ones in Cairo, the ones who work in shelters. What I often say that what we see in our lifetime, they see in a week. So they really are the angels. They're the ones who do the heavy lifting. 
They rescue them from unimaginable situations, and they take them to the vet. They get them, you know, healthy. They do all the checks that we, and that we ask them to do. They get them to the airport. They send us vials on each one. So they really are the ones who do the heavy lifting. So much of what you do at Golden Rescue and, and your partners around the world, it is, it's reliant on donations and on what we call freebies, if you will. So talk to me about the airline and, and how all of that was put together. Well, we are not getting any, any breaks from any airlines, <laughs> let me tell you that. As a matter of fact, our rates uh, for rescuing a, a Golden overseas have gone up. Um, so we really do rely on our donations and uh, and angels who come forward who actually sponsor an entire golden. It costs us about fifteen hundred dollars to bring each golden here to Canada. Um, and and I did want to just mention that our logo says underneath that we're about second chances. But for the goldens in Cairo, we really are their only chance. Right now, they're being poisoned on the street, they're being shot, and they're being sent to the Korean meat trade. So we really need to try and rescue as many of them as we can, and we rely on sponsorships for that. How was the flight over for them? It's a long way from Cairo to Pearson Airport. So how were they prepared for that by the the shelter folks who were so magnanimous and so compassionate about all of this? And, And did someone, a human or to accompany the 36 dogs on the flight? No, well, the, the, the Goldens are all in the cargo hold, so I can imagine that it's very, very traumatic for them. The good news is that most airlines do have the area lit, they, and it's obviously heated, and they actually pump in music for them, so I think that's uh, very humane. But uh, there's no question that's traumatic, and if we didn't have to do that, I wouldn't put um, a golden or any dog on a plane. But I, uh, philosophically, we think that one day of misery for them is uh, worth a happily ever after. Hmm. And how about the forever families, those who will be welcoming, if they haven't already, the these beautiful, courageous canines? What are they like, the families? Well, they are in themselves angels. They, um, Out of the 36 uh, uh, dogs, mostly Goldens, who arrived last week, uh, 34 families were there to greet them. So there's not a dry eye when the crate doors are open and we call out who's coming out next. Tucker will call Tucker's family. Tucker's family come to the top of the, the cargo ramp and, you know, tears are pouring and it's just, it's, it's an incredible experience to see them come out. Many of them are, are afraid. Um, but I'd say the vast majority come bounding out of their crates, and they should, uh, by all accounts, many of them should uh, not like humans, but they come out, uh, they live in the present tense, their tails are wagging, they know who's being nice to them, and they're the golden goofballs that we all love and know, (laughs) and they become that way in, in a nanosecond. It's been now 11 or 12 days since they landed at Pearson. Will the families uh, now ha- be able to bring them home? Did they go to the vet first? Did Was there some sort of a transition between the flight and actually moving into a family's home? No, the families who come to the airport, um, 
we, we have a vet at the airport and we did some testing, but most of the families had vet appointments within the next uh, couple of days. So from the airport, the Goldens happily jumped into their family's car and they went home with their families. So they've been, uh, they've been united since the moment they arrived. And does this story have a happy ending? Every one of them. Every one of them is, uh, they're all happy. They're, uh, our families are telling us that uh, it's incredible how quickly they transition. Some of them have said that it feels like they've been living with them forever. And there's just something about when you rescue um, not just a golden, but any dog. But um, our families all think that they really understand and are grateful that they've been rescued. If someone wants to donate, and I know how important it is to the success of Golden Rescue, where do they go? Well, probably the easiest thing is to go to our website, uh, goldenrescue.ca. There's a tab there for donate, and there's lots of different ways you can donate. Um, All the ways are listed there. A lifesaver, Golden Rescue. Viva Tam, thank you so much for telling us this tale on the feed, and thank you for the happy endings. Oh, thank you very much. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.